Thank you for choosing to listen to the Philida Baptist Church podcast, a weekly podcast of our sermon series here at Philida. In this message, part one of a brand new series entitled Seeing God in the Ordinary, Pastor Scott reminds us that life is full of ordinary things, routine things, boring things, and sometimes very hard things. Where is God in all of these things? The book of Ruth can show us. So let's join Pastor Scott Roberson for part one, His Mercy in Hardship. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lift up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her, and she said, Naomi, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, 
means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So begins the book of Ruth, where we are going to spend a few weeks, the Lord should will, to teach us some things about himself. It's a wonderful little book. It's a favorite of many, and if you've never read it, I would encourage you, and even if you have read it, over the next several weeks, take some time. It's short. It's easy to read. Read it through several times. Uh, It's a great book. But, you know, in, in many ways, it's a book about very ordinary things. Things like families, people getting married, having children, trying to make a living. It's about friendship. It's about hardship. It's about love. It's about babies being born and people dying. It's, it's the stuff of everyday life. And there are no miracles in this book, not one. There's no crossing of the Red Sea. There's no burning bushes, uh, no turning water into wine, no prophets speaking words of judgment or hope, nothing like that. No miraculous deliverances. No angelic messengers bringing a word from the Lord. In fact, although God is spoken of several times throughout the book, he himself never speaks. He never acts directly. And yet for all of that, God is everywhere in this book. His fingerprints, so to speak, are over the whole story as he works through all of these ordinary things. I want to just summarize the rest of the story. We read chapter 1. There are three others. I just want to summarize the story for you, and that's going to spoil it for those of you who don't know it. Sorry. Uh, Kind of have to do that if we're going to learn anything. So there's these two widows. There's Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and, and they are experiencing very hard times. In fact, their situation is desperate as they come back to Bethlehem, to the land of Israel. And Ruth is not an Israelite. She's a Moabite. She's from the nation of Moab, and you just need to know that the Moabites and the Israelites, bad blood between them, going back quite some time. And so Ruth has several strikes against her. She's a widow. She is a foreigner. And times are tough. But Ruth, she is one determined lady, and she is determined to provide for her mother-in-law and for herself. So what she does, chapter 2, she goes out gleaning. If you don't know what that is, gleaning is a provision that God had put in his law for the Israelites to provide for the poor. And Gleaning meant that you could go out into the fields and in the orchards after the harvest had happened, and you could pick up all the leftovers you wanted. It was kind of a welfare system, but the check didn't show up in the mail. You had to go out and get the food. 
And so Ruth goes out gleaning, and she just happens to find herself in the field of this guy named Boaz, who just happens to be a relative of Naomi's, and who just happens to be one of the richest and nicest guys around. And when Naomi realizes what's going on, when she realizes who this guy is who's being so nice to Ruth, she figures it out. She puts it together, and she gives Ruth some very timely, very motherly advice. And after some very interesting plot developments, Ruth and Boaz get married, and they have a baby, and the hard times give way to great joy. And if you didn't know any better, you'd think you were reading the plot of a chick flick. Because your two main characters are two very strong, very determined women who are in desperate need, a mother and her daughter-in-law, who have both loved and lost, and now they have to depend on each other to succeed. Then one day the daughter meets a kind and wealthy, eligible bachelor. He's powerful and successful, yet sensitive and generous. And mom and daughter make plans to try to win this guy's heart. He hasn't a clue what's about to happen to him. But wait! There's another man in the story who could mess the whole thing up. That's one of those interesting plot developments that we'll get to later. And we have to anxiously wait to see if true love will prevail after all. And of course it does. And the story ends with a marriage and the birth of a baby boy, and they all live happily ever after. You could call it my big fat Israeli wedding. <laughs> or maybe even desperate housewives. Uh, that would work too. But if that's how we read the story, if that's how we read the story, we're going to miss a lot. We're going to miss a lot because even though this story is full of a bunch of ordinary things, this story ultimately is about God. It's about God. God is at work in this story. And I think that's so relevant for us because don't we wonder about that? Don't we wonder? I mean, if you are a follower of Jesus today, and you may not be, and if you're here checking it out, that is great. But I pray the day will come soon when you will say yes to Jesus Christ and receive his gift of life and forgiveness and become part of God's family. But if you are a follower of Christ, you know, you know from the Bible that God has great plans for you. You know that God has important stuff for you to do, to be involved in. And yet, so much of life just seems so ordinary, so vanilla, so just routine. I mean, going to school, going to work, making dinner, taking out the trash, <laughs> mowing the lawn, changing diapers, doing homework. Where is God in all that? Is God there? Is God at work? Is God doing anything? Yeah, I think it can be very hard to see God in the ordinary, can't it? Why is that? 
Why is it so hard for us to see God in the ordinary? Well, a couple thoughts occur to me as I read through this story. And one is, I think we're prone to miss God's hand of providence in meeting our needs. I think there are lots of reasons for that, but I think we're very prone to miss God's hand of providence in meeting our needs. I think we have a tendency to believe something that isn't true. I think we have a tendency to believe that if God were to do something in my life, I'd be sure to notice, because it would be amazing, and it would be big, and it would be obvious. Sometimes it is. Do you know what? Most of the time, it isn't obvious at all. When we think of God working, we tend to think of the miraculous. But most of the time, most of the time when God works, it's not through the miraculous, it's through the providential. And there's a difference. A miracle is when God acts directly. He suspends or overrules the natural laws that he himself created. And he just does something outside of nature. Providence is when God works indirectly through nature, through his creation, through his natural laws. I'll give you some examples here in just a minute. But think of the word, to understand the word providence, think of the word provide. Providence is God providing for us through his creation and the way that he set it up to work. And here's the thing we need to remember. This, I think, is a lesson from this book. God working, when God works providentially, that is just as much a God thing as when God works miraculously. It's just as much God working, it's just different. When God works providentially, it's different. It's slower. And it's a lot less obvious, but God is still at work through the ordinary stuff of life. And this book is all about that. Look again at verse 6. Here's a place to see it. Verse 6, Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, if you didn't know any better, what would you think happened? God showed up, and he gave them food. And then they go. They go back to the land of Judah, the land of Israel. And what do they find? Do they find a bunch of angels passing out free pita bread and hummus? No. It says they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. See, when it says the Lord visited his people and gave them food, it means the famine was over. And there was now an abundance of grain waiting to be harvested. And to the author of Ruth, that's God. God provided food. You say, well, wait, who provided that grain? Wasn't it the farmers who sowed the seed? Yeah, but where'd they get the seed from? Oh, they got it from last year's harvest. Oh, okay, where'd they get that seed? Well, it was the harvest before that. Well, where'd that come from? And, and what about the sunshine? 
and the rain and the soil? And what about the genetic information within the seed that tells it how to grow? Farmers don't have any control over that. They didn't put that information in there. God did that. And it grows up and provides grain. So when this book says the Lord gave his people food, you know what that means? It means the Lord gave his people food. The fact that he did it indirectly through his creation doesn't change that fact. God still did that. Psalm 104 says, He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. So, uh, one day Jesus went to a wedding. In uh, the Gospel of John, we learn about this. And he goes to this wedding, and it's, it's a social calamity because they've run out of wine. And Jesus very graciously helps him out, and he turns water into wine instantly. That is a miracle. But that is not how God usually makes wine. Okay, what usually happens is that the water... Instead of being in a stone water pot that Jesus says become wine and poof, the water gets absorbed into grapevines. And then it becomes grapes, and then those grapes are harvested, and then they're squeezed, and then the juice ferments through a process, a natural process. The growing of grapes is not a miracle, but it is a work of God. Jesus, out on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, and they're all in a boat, and this this wicked storm comes up, and they're scared to death. Well, the apostles are. Jesus wasn't. And he speaks a word, and instantly everything becomes calm. That's a miracle. Now, here in the Northwest, when the sun comes out, it feels like a miracle. But it's not. It's just the natural laws of barometric pressure and wind and condensation and all that stuff finally giving us a break. But the hand of God's providence is behind it. So when you walk out in the sunshine, you just go, oh, praise the Lord. That's right. That's right. And see, if we overlook this, if we, if we miss the hand of because we live in a culture that says, oh, you know, science explains everything. We, we know how clouds happen and rain happens. And, and we think that because science can explain how things work, that that explains why they work that way and where they came from in the first place. It doesn't. It can't. Science can't do that. If we miss God's hand of providence, it causes all kinds of problems. We become very ungrateful. Very ungrateful for all of the good things that you and I enjoy every single day. We take them for granted. We fail to give God credit for them. We neglect to glorify Him for His goodness. You know, in some ways, I find God's works of providence to be even more amazing than His works of miracle. Uh, you know, I mean, miracles are totally amazing, but you think about it, not only in providence, not only does God work through natural processes and natural laws, 
He also works through the choices of people. And that is astonishing to me. That is so mysterious. In this story, there are countless human decisions that ultimately lead to the marriage of Boaz and Ruth and the birth of their baby boy, who, it turns out, is the grandfather of David, the greatest king Israel ever had, and the forerunner of the Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ. God worked through countless natural processes and human decisions to provide a king for Israel and a savior for the world. How did he do that? I don't know. I don't have a clue. It was all ordinary stuff. And yet God was behind it all and working through it all. All that ordinary stuff. He was in it all doing big stuff. The book of Ruth is telling us, don't miss it, people. Don't miss God being at work and being good to you through the ordinary things of life. Don't miss it. When you go to the grocery store and you fill up that cart, God's providing food for you. Don't miss the hand of providence in meeting your needs. But we can miss seeing God in the ordinary for another reason that shows up here in chapter 1. We are prone to miss God's heart of mercy in times of hardship. Hardships are ordinary things. Just like working and eating and all that other ordinary stuff in life. It, it, it's everywhere in this world, hardship is. Happens all the time. Happens to everybody, sooner or later. All of us. Some hardships are of our own making, the result of bad choices. Bad decisions. Now, you, you may not have noticed it. Maybe you didn't catch it. But if you had been a Jewish person living when this book was first written, that opening scene about Elimelech taking his family and moving from Judah and taking his family to Moab, that would have shocked you. That would have scandalized you. To get a feel for it, it'd be something like this. If I said, you know, there once was this Christian family, very involved in their church. But then one day the dad decided that it would be best for his family if they left the church, left the Christian faith, and got hooked up with the local chapter of atheists. Because the dad thought that would be better for business. And you'd go, exactly. What Elimelech does here is an act of unbelief against God. He's leaving the promised land that God had given to his people. He is leaving the people of God. And he is basically saying, I don't trust you, God. I do not trust you to take care of me and my family. I reject your leadership. I'm going to do things my own way. I'm out of here. You say, 
Well, it's a famine. Yes, he was very right to be concerned about his family, about providing for his family. But there are right ways to provide for your family, and there are wrong ways to provide for your family. And at this point in history, in this context, to walk away from the land of God had given his people and to walk away from the people of God, that was, that was the wrong thing to do. And that's one reason why Naomi attributes her husband's death to the hand of God. She knows. She knows it was an act of divine discipline. She believes God took his life, and this book never contradicts her. And see, even though Elimelech made the bad choice, I don't know how much Naomi was involved in this. It doesn't say she did it. He did it. Even though she, wasn't, she didn't make the choice, she suffers for it. Because our bad decisions always affect the people who love us. Always. Don't, don't ever kid yourself that you can disobey God and it won't hurt anybody. That's ridiculous. It is just not true. But even in this hardship, God shows mercy to Naomi. Do you realize that if, if Elimelech had lived and if her sons had lived, Naomi may never have returned to the promised land and the people of God. Ruth would never have come to the promised land with her as a believer in Yahweh, the true God. Ruth and Boaz would never have met. They would never have gotten married and never have become the great grandparents of King David and Messiah Jesus Romans 8.28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. So this is saying that if we say yes to Jesus Christ, if we embrace his call on our lives, if we embrace and receive his forgiveness and leadership, then we can know that God will work everything out for our good, even the hardest things. Oh, man, that can be so hard to believe sometimes. And I'm sure that if you had quoted that verse to Naomi, hey, Naomi, just want to remind you that for those who love God, those who are called on his purpose, all things work together for good. I think if you had quoted that to her after her husband and her sons died, she would not have believed you. Oh, she believed that God was at work in all things, but not for her good. No way. But he was. He was. And we're going to see it more and more as the story unfolds. God's heart toward Naomi was full of mercy and compassion. How do we see God's heart of mercy? How do we experience God's heart of mercy in hard times? want to give you four lessons that I see here as we wrap up for today. First, if you're away from God, if you're away from God, hear his call to come home. Now for Naomi, that literally meant moving to a different place. For us, geography is not the issue. Coming home to God means responding to his gracious invitation in Jesus Christ to receive us and forgive us and direct our lives, to connect us with his people, to connect us with his plan. 
If you're living away from God, the hardships you experience may very well be his mercy calling you home. Come home. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here is called to come home. Second, to experience God's heart of mercy and hardship, embrace the grace you can see. Even in the hardest situations, God is doing good. Even to those who don't trust him. Jesus said in Matthew 5, he says, Your Father in heaven causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. By the way, just notice the providence of God there. When the sun shines and when the rain falls, God is ultimately behind that. Even when things are terrible, even when things are awful, we still experience God's undeserved goodness. Yes, usually our problem is we think we deserve better than we get. We think because we've been trying to, you know, follow Jesus and do all this hard stuff he wants me to do that, you know, God kind of owes me here. And then when something goes wrong, it's like, <laughs> okay, that was pointless. Not pointless at all. And God doesn't owe us a thing. Not one thing, but his mercy overflows. His goodness overflows every day. Sunshine, food, air to breathe, flowers to look at, music. The fact that you were able to get out of bed today and get here, that is an undeserved gift of God. Can you see me? That's a gift. Can you hear me? That's a gift. It really is. Can you walk? Can you eat and drink? Do you have food in your house? God's goodness, His mercy. Embrace the grace you can see. Yeah, there's grace you can't see, but embrace the grace you can see. Gratitude transforms our attitudes big time. Third, to experience God's heart of mercy in hard times, let people love you. It's so common when we're hurting to want to isolate ourselves, just Excuse me, I'll be under that rock for a while. <laughs> Go about your business. Nothing to see here. We do that. Naomi tries to do that. Well, daughters-in-law, it's been not very fun, but you just go ahead, go, go back, leave me alone. I'll be all right. And Ruth, to her credit, says, uh-uh, no hoo I'm staying with you. You're not getting rid of me. What a gift of God's mercy Ruth was to Naomi. And what a gift we can be to one another in hard times. You know, Jesus said, actually it's Paul in Galatians uh, 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? 
Well, it's probably uh, love one another as I have loved you. That's the new commandment I give to you, love one another. How do we love one another according to this? We bear one another's burdens. We help carry each other's burdens. Well, guess what? If we don't share our burdens, nobody can carry them. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this. I'm getting to be older, so I've been a pastor longer And so many people fail to make the investment in building relationships until the catastrophe happens, and then it's too late. Invest in the relationships before the burdens get heavy, and then you'll have somebody to help carry them. Burden has to be shared to be carried. Fourth, to experience God's heart of mercy in hard times, remember that you are in the middle of a story with a happy ending if you know the Lord, if you trust Him. If you belong to Jesus Christ, no matter what's going on in your life today, no matter what bad things are happening right now, your best days are still ahead, not behind. And that's a guarantee. 1 Peter 1.13, set your hope fully on what? Graduating from high school, getting married, getting a great job, making lots of money, having lots of kids, everybody being happy, finally retiring with wealth and comfort, seeing your grandkids, put your hope on those things? No, those are good things, but that's not where we're to set our hope. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed, future, You know, Naomi, at this point in the story, had no idea what good things God had in store for her. She didn't have a clue. And frankly, you and I don't either. We don't know. We don't know what good things God is going to do for us. We don't know what good things God's going to do in us. We're still in the middle of the story. Don't conclude. Don't look at your life and say, hopeless tragedy with a terrible ending. You're still in the middle. The ending hasn't happened yet. Story isn't over. And neither is this one. We'll pick it up here next time, Lord willing. Let's pray together. It's important just to give us all a moment to consider what the book of Ruth is telling us. To see God's hand of providence. To be grateful. God's at work in the ordinary. And even in the hard times, the hardships that feel so unbearable, God is at work. And if we say yes to Jesus Christ... God promises that every one of those bad things will ultimately work out for our ultimate good. We may have no idea how or when, but that's a promise. So if you're in hard times right now, I just encourage you to trust Him, even though it's so hard.
Just cry out to him. Father in heaven, you're so much greater than our minds can grasp. You're at work through millions and billions of little ordinary things that we can't even understand. And you're doing it all so that the world will know that Jesus is Lord and experience his forgiveness, his leadership. Lord, help us trust you. Help us see you at work in the things of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Flight of Baptist Church podcast. To stay connected, or for more resources, visit our brand new website at philida.org.